You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. I will, Giles. Uh, thank you and I trust all our listeners are and as I'm explaining to our, our producer, Anne Delaney, I've uh, the family has survived my cooking, uh, uh, but I'm not sure that my wife is convinced that uh, it would survive another go. But there we are. Better to talk about electricity, I think. Yes, look, much safer ground, David, much safer ground. Um, look, there's been a fair bit. Look, there is a fair bit to talk about. Uh, we've seen a couple of interesting reports come from the Australian energy market operator in the last week. We've also seen a response from the South Australia government, um, most notably the... Um, the decision to fast track some uh, things, and we'll talk about this later, frustrated with the regulatory process, which is an age-old story, and some interesting reactions to, to the proposal delay for the uh, five-minute ruling. But let's get first into the interview for the week. Uh, it's with Drew Kojak, who is the Executive Director of the International Council on Clean Transportation. Now, unfortunately, the um, the uh, National Broadband did, did away with me and I wasn't able to connect in time. So you did the interview, uh, David, with Drew and, and a mighty fine job you did for too. And look, it's an interesting one. And let's kick it off here. This is... Um, with Drew Kojak, from the Executive Director of the International Council on Clean Transportation. And David, start off the conversation by asking what the ICCT was and what its goals were. So I run the International Council on Clean Transportation. Uh, we are an international research group dedicated uh, to help governments draft policies um, that encourage clean transportation. Uh, and by that, I mean... Um, working with the auto and the oil industries to produce uh, cleaner, more efficient vehicles uh, and fuels. Uh, and on the vehicle side, we cover all modes. So in our language, light-duty vehicles are passenger cars, medium and heavy-duty trucks and buses, marine, including international vessels and uh, aircraft, civil aviation. Um, so basically anything with a, with a motor that has wheels uh, is what we uh, tend to focus on. That's about 20-25% of global greenhouse gas emissions uh, and a, certainly a larger portion in some cities of what we call criteria pollutants that lead to air pollution. And I think you've got offices in uh, a number of centres around the world and maybe just an indication of your total staff size. Sure. Uh, so we have... Uh, we have uh, five offices now, uh, two in the U.S., Washington, D.C., and in San Francisco. We've got one in Berlin, Germany, one in Beijing, China, and one in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, and we have uh, a number of staff uh, and an application for a new office uh, in India. Um, so that is the, that's the scope, uh, and the focus is consistent with that. We try to focus on the, the top vehicle markets around the world. Uh, we have more than 80 staff uh, right now, 
primarily very talented engineers um, in the mechanical engineering, electrical engineering uh, sciences. That's, uh, that's a very comprehensive and it, it makes me excited to do this interview because I can think of few people who will have such a good grasp of uh, the global effort. And uh, I want to zero in in a minute on what kind of, what, I guess what the conclusions of all your work over many years and the work at the ICCT has, where we've got to. But I'd like to also just get a sense from where you sit at the moment, I guess, of what you would say is the global political will, if I can put it that way, or the will within the automobile industry, which is the thing I think we'll most focus on. How is how, what's the sense of momentum and energy uh, to decarbonise uh, um, uh, light vehicle transport at the moment compared to how it's been in the past? Well, that is a complicated question, uh, and allow me to try to break it apart into some some pieces. Uh, I, I would say, in a word, uh, that it's mixed um, on the on the countryside. Um, there are, uh, there's a lot of very strong efforts going on right now, uh, primarily in China, uh, which is home for about half of all new passenger vehicle, uh, electric passenger vehicle sales uh, at the moment. Uh, and in Europe, uh, Europe is um, moving forward with what they call a, a green deal, uh, which is having them focus on even strengthening what was uh, quite strong policies to drive electric vehicles and improve the efficiency of traditional internal combustion engines. Where it's uh, falling behind uh, is in the United States, uh, where uh, the current administration is rolling back uh, some what had what had been some of the world's uh, strongest uh, fuel economy uh, standards for for passenger cars. Uh, so that's a it's a mixed bag when you look at the the major markets, uh, and I think you know. Uh, Japan is also a major market, and Japan is a, a major producer of vehicles that are sold in, in Australia. Um, and Japan's a little bit of a mixed bag as well. Uh, most of its manufacturers are, um, have been wedded to, to hydrogen fuel cell vehicles uh, over the last couple of years with the sharp declines in the cost of batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, fuel cells are becoming... Uh, less of an option, at least for light-duty vehicles. Um, and so Japan's also a little bit of a mixed bag today. When you look at uh, vehicle manufacturers, it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating picture. Um, uh, one of the things that, that has become apparent over the last maybe less than a year uh, is that the storyline that we had been hearing over the last several years that Tesla uh, was, you know, this feisty startup that uh, would be easily overtaken uh, by the mainstream manufacturers once they started putting their technological prowess and dealerships and marketing uh, efforts into producing and selling electric vehicles. And, and that, unfortunately, uh, hasn't really happened. Um, we've seen the traditional manufacturers pledging to come out with uh, electric vehicles that are competitive and, and they just haven't really been selling all that well um, and they haven't come out with very many. 
uh, there's been lots of delays. Um, so Tesla is really the, the global leader now uh, in electric vehicles. Uh, and it looks more and more like the lead that Tesla has on the rest of the, the market is quite substantial. Uh, and while that's uh, you know, nice to see for uh, a manufacturer uh, that uh, you know, came at uh, an industry and tried to reinvent it and has managed to, to do a good job in that. Um, from an environmental perspective, we really do need uh, all of the main manufacturers to uh, transition to electrification uh, as quickly as possible if we're going to try to stay below uh, one and a half degrees of warming. Uh, which is what the world has committed to um, in the Paris Accord in, in 2015 and 2016. Um, so, 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 you know, so, so I'll, I'll stop there, but that's my sort of mixed bag picture for now. No, that's, that's excellent, Drew. And um, I, I agree with you. It's great to see Tesla doing well, but it would be nice if some of the other manufacturers uh, could, could actually work out how to do it as well. But I, I think what it, what it does show, as in so many other industries, is that... Uh, People who it's often the disruptors often said that they can't last once uh, once the incumbents get really going, but often it turns out that the uh, disruptor knows a lot more about what they're trying to do than the incumbent does and trying to stop it. Um, I guess if I come back to a policy point of view, which I think will be of interest to many in in Australia, because we haven't got any policies uh, and we import essentially all of our vehicles. Um, uh, one way or another, but if you were designing a program, um, uh, and and uh, I mean, how would you do it? Would it focus on existing emission standards uh, and just uh, tightening those up all the time, or would you give incentives for electric vehicles, or, or or both? I mean, what what do you think are the best elements of the programs that you've you've studied? Oh, well, I I love that question. Thanks for the thanks for the question. Um, well, so I would do a couple things. Um, first of all, Australia has um, thought about and considered adopting fuel economy standards for many years now. Uh, and my organization has uh, commented and provided analysis and justification for those standards, but they haven't been adopted. Uh, so the first thing to do is simply to adopt uh, fuel economy standards. And you can call them by many names. They can be CO2 standards, greenhouse gas standards fuel economy standards, uh, they all essentially regulate the same thing, uh, which is carbon emissions from vehicles. And I would do it both for light duty vehicles or passenger cars and heavy duty vehicles, which is trucks and buses. Uh, so all on-road vehicles with some form of carbon or fuel efficiency standard, just as a starting point, because there is still uh, going to be a, a, you know, at least two billion uh, new internal combustion engines uh, produced for sale over the next 30 years between you know, 2020 and 2050, uh, and making sure that they're uh, as efficient as possible, burning as little carbon as possible on a per mile basis is, is critical to deal with climate change. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, one of the most effective policies that we've seen in driving electrification is uh, what California started years ago in the 1990s, uh, which they call the ZEV or Zero Emission Vehicle Mandate. Uh, and at the time, California uh, required manufacturers to slowly increase the percentage of vehicles 
sold in California to be zero emission. Uh, and that could be uh, battery electric, uh, that could be fuel cell, uh, any technology that produces zero emissions at the tailpipe. Right? Um, and that, that policy years ago was seen as very draconian by the manufacturers, and I think somewhat rightly so. Um, but over time, it's now been slowly adopted by other countries and regions. So uh, China, uh, a couple of years ago, adopted what is essentially the same thing. They call it the new energy vehicle standards. Um, and then Europe has also adopted uh, electric vehicle or low carbon uh, benchmark standards. They don't quite have the teeth uh, of the California standards, but they set targets. Uh, so for example, just to give you some specifics, uh, the, the EV requirements or the benchmarking requirements in Europe in 2030 are a 30% requirement of new sales. Um, now, those aren't as enforceable as California's, but everyone thinks that those will actually probably be pretty good targets and, and are likely to be met. And in fact, uh, the latest information we have in Europe is that year over year to date sales are 7%. And in March, they were up to 10% EV sales Europe wide. Uh, so Europe that, is actually that, doing pretty well. That's uh, Europe's always the uh, well, not always. I mean, California and Europe are, uh, in just about everywhere we look in decarbonisation, and uh, end up being the leaders. I guess in terms of the, let's just talk a little bit more about the ZEV uh, uh, mm -hmm. program in the United States, which I think after California, there's nine other states, and I think Colorado was talking about it, and I believe there was an effort at one stage in Canada to go that way as well. Mm -hmm. um, are those standards still being, I mean, is the ZEV percentage lifting? Or, I mean, uh, I think in Tesla, you can't even get any tax. They've met their level, of course. I mean, uh, I, I, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what the state of play is on those, uh, those standards in the United States. Of course. Um, so... Uh, let me just start with a quick uh, um, history lesson in, in the Clean Air Act. So the, the Clean Air Act uh, is a federal legislation that um, essentially allows the federal government to set uh, greenhouse gas emission standards uh, and emission standards uh, for vehicles um, uh, with the ex and, and that preempts all states with the exception of California. Uh, California is given a special exemption uh, in federal law to set its own standards. Uh, and at the time that was done because California's air pollution was so much worse than the rest of the countries. And California had really pioneered um, motor vehicle emission standards and actually ha had the first discovery of linking air pollution in Los Angeles uh, or emissions from vehicles to uh, ground level ozone at the time. So that exemption was made, and then it's all, there's another provision which allows other states to adopt the California standards as long as they are identical. And so it is those two provisions in the Federal Clean Air Act that allow California and then following states, as you've said, uh, to adopt more stringent standards than the federal government, and those can be both air pollution standards they clean up fine particles or ozone, for example, or greenhouse gas emission standards. That is historically what, is ha what has been happening. And generally, uh, California and the 
the eight Northeast states uh, have adopted, and that has since spread to other uh, states as well. As you mentioned, Colorado has actually adopted the California program. Um, so that's the general situation. What has happened now is that the Trump administration uh, recently finalized a new regulation uh, which has uh, on its face claimed that has essentially withdrawn the federal waiver that allows California to set its own standards. And that is now being challenged in court. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty as to what will happen. Uh, and that uncertainty is so great that five auto manufacturers wanting desperately to get some certainty have said, look, you know what, whatever happens at the federal level, we will follow California's program. Um, and so they've essentially set a, uh, created a side agreement with California. And this is Ford, uh, Volkswagen, BMW, Honda, and more recently Volvo. And these five manufacturers have said, you know what, this uncertainty is very, very bad for business. Uh, we are going to agree with, with California that we will produce vehicles slightly less stringent than the California standards, but we will do it nationwide, independent of what happens with this federal lawsuit. So it's a very messy and uncertain time in uh, the United States. Uh, but that's essentially a snapshot of what's going on. Yes, you mentioned Volvo, and I noticed that one uh, decent competitor to the Tesla, uh, just as a, as a motorist, uh, might be the new Polestar, which I don't want to talk about, but uh, just to throw that out there. I, I want to come back to China, Drew, in a second, in, in, in the sure. time that we have left to us. But I, you mentioned Ford there, and I guess after a very, very slow start and, and you know, with the um, epic image of a Ford as an F-150, I think, a pickup truck, which no one's going to mistake for an electric vehicle, it does seem that Ford itself is, is starting to take electric... I mean, can you sort of put any colour around Ford's efforts? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you know... Um, one of the things that seems to be happening, uh, not only with Ford, but also with, uh, you know, General Motors, for example, uh, and Audi, for example, is that uh, manufacturers have realized that in order to make uh, maybe profits uh, early on with electric vehicles, that they are thinking about electrifying their bigger vehicles. So SUVs, uh, for example, um, the Audi e-tron is a very heavy vehicle, uh, weighing at around 4,000 pounds. General Motors is going to create an electric Hummer. Uh, it's a very large vehicle. Uh, and Ford is uh, also uh, collaborating with um, Rivian uh, to produce uh, an electric pickup uh, truck and SUV. So um, it's actually the re sort of the reverse effort of what Tesla started with, which is the sports car and then uh, the four-door sedan in the, in the Model 3, um, more along the lines of the Cybertruck, which uh, Tesla is also uh, coming out with in, a, in about a year and a half. So that's, the, that's a bit of the color of what's going on. I mean, and then I guess the last thing I'll say is, and I should make a plug for, for Volkswagen. Um, Volkswagen got a bit of a black eye with the Dieselgate scandal. Um, but has since, uh, you know, in my estimation, turned itself around and is trying to turn itself around and is sincerely uh, investing uh, tens of billions of dollars into 
electrifying its entire uh, suite of passenger vehicles. Um, they're a little bit slower than they expected in coming out with uh, vehicles, but uh, if I were to mention uh, one of the leading manufacturers outside of Tesla uh, on the electrification side, it would be it would be Volkswagen in my book. No, I agree with that. They've essentially, in my opinion, pretty much made a bet the company uh, amount of investment. Uh, you can't throw US fifty billion and more uh, at a business uh, with their market capitalization and uh, you know if that goes if it doesn't work it's it's pretty serious so uh, I, I hope their their new models uh, can succeed uh, we'll just have to wait and see I guess as you say it's been a bit slow starting C coming back to the policy area I guess yeah. uh, we've, we in recent years uh, we've all looked at China uh, which is not the world's biggest car center despite its population and lead in so many other commodities but in, in vehicles China's sort of uh, coming up the curve, but I, I, I get a sense that policy in China is kind of uh, at, a, at a watershed moment. They're more broadly they're doing a new five-year plan for their economy. But, mm -hmm. but what's your sense of where things are in in China at the moment and how they're going to move forward over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, um, it's a, it's a, it's actually a little bit of a difficult question. Um, you know, China is really also, uh, I mean, I agree everything you said about Volkswagen and China is sort of doing the same thing. They really are betting heavily uh, on electrification as uh, the road for their auto industry to become globally competitive. Uh, <clears throat> and so, but China really is the global leader, right? It's got uh, the highest sales, highest, biggest market for uh, electric vehicles, uh, highest production, highest production of EV batteries, uh, highest production in, and market for electric buses as well, by far, uh, and the same with electric uh, you know, motorcycles. So it is, in terms of volume, uh, absolutely the dominating the market at the moment. Um, their policies, um, you know, China's trying to wean its auto industry off of um, significant subsidies. Uh, and there was a phase down of those subsidies uh, in 2019. Um, but they also followed with a sharp uh, decline in sales. Uh, and so rather than see uh, the industry really, um, you know, suffer, uh, the, the central government um, Sort of renewed those those subsidies, and, and I think the the market will come back. Um, but it, it did seem like the, the government was, you know, very interested in trying to wean the industry off, and it just was a little bit premature. Um, but one of the things that it does show is that the government continues to be, uh, I think, appropriately, but also very strongly supportive of the industry, uh, and that's a good thing. Yes, look, Drew, I, I I'm sure that. And maybe we'll have to have to do this again. There's about a million more questions that I, I wanted to ask because going below subsidies, it's interesting to see whether things like parking incentives and that can produce stimulus at, at much lower cost. But I wanted to come back to a, the, the overarching um, economist view of how to set policy, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And that is that if you, we've talked about ZEV standards and we've talked about uh, fuel standards in general. And I guess the economist in me, and, and you know, so 
uh, I guess I kind of think that electric vehicles have a much brighter future than hydrogen vehicles. But, I, but in Australia and indeed worldwide, there just seems to be a massive push for hydrogen at the moment, even though electric vehicles are getting everywhere. But the way to let the market decide that would probably be to set a vehicle emission standards and then let the uh, that are tighter and tighter, uh, almost like a cap and trade in carbon, and then let the market work out the best way to meet the standards. Is would you agree with that? Uh, I I would with a with a significant but. Uh, you know, uh, David, I I'm a huge believer in what we call performance standards, which do what you say. You set uh, the performance that you need. Uh, whether or not it's grams of CO2 per mile or grams of NOx emissions, whatever that is. Uh, and you let the private industry uh, figure out how to meet that uh, and what technologies to use, et cetera. Uh, and that has worked incredibly well uh, over the last 50 years uh, with the auto industry really impressively coming forward with cheaper, more effective ways of lowering emissions. Um, the challenge that we now face with this very quick need to transition to zero emission vehicles is that we don't really have enough time just for performance standards per se. Uh, and in part that's because, uh, in part that's because uh, there's also the infrastructure requirements. Uh, so for electric vehicles, um, you know, there's a very big need for charging infrastructure, for hydrogen fuel cells, which by the way, um, we're certainly not talking about them for passenger cars, but for long haul commercial trucks uh, and even marine vessels, uh, they're under active consideration. That would require hydrogen infrastructure as well, both the production of hydrogen and the distribution of hydrogen, which can be quite costly. Um, so we're at a stage now where we need performance standards plus is what I would say. Uh, Carrot and, and the stick. Uh, uh, I think guidelines, I think performance standards with uh, additional complementary policies, I would say. <laughs> right. That's, uh, it's, I agree with you. It's like having a renewable energy uh, uh, subsidy, if you like, uh, uh, as well as a, a carbon uh, policy in the electricity industry. Drew, it's been fantastic talking to you. Always a pleasure to talk to someone who knows so much about their topic. Uh, and uh, I hope the good work uh, may continue uh, until the job's done. Thank you, David. A real pleasure to, to meet you and to be on your show. And that was Drew Kojak from the International Council on Clean Transportation. Fascinating interview, David. Um, really good to get a very sound, broad perspective of the electric vehicle industry and and um, and um, the need to actually get moving on transport. Absolutely. Um, as all of us know, I think uh, oil, in one form or another, is the second largest uh, um, source of global carbon emissions and uh, land transport is the next sector uh, that is uh, being attacked quite heavily after electricity and it's a sector I guess from Australia's perspective one of the things that makes me think is that we, we have this current focus on hydrogen and sometimes I think we focus on hydrogen just because it's not wind or solar and it's not batteries and they're kind of the <laughs> 
left side of things, whereas hydrogen's a more traditional process that it makes easier for the federal government to get behind. Uh, but, you know, when you think about uh, land transport, that's cars, Giles, and you think, do you, does Australia really want to be investing in hydrogen infrastructure and electric vehicle recharging infrastructure at the same time? And, and uh, or do you want to let the market fight it out? Or how do you want to proceed? But I think you and I can both agree that if standing right here today, when it comes to cars and probably to buses, it's not a contest. Uh, I mean, electric cars have seen massive investment by car companies and, and, and selling in their millions every year, whereas hydrogen cars, uh, you know, are pretty hard to find. I thoroughly agree with you. you know, I love that little description that you made there of hydrogen. Um, as Drew pointed out in the interview, though, um, Australia has actually chosen neither one nor the other. In fact, it actually sort of stands quite unique in the developed world. It doesn't even have any fuel emission standards. And as Drew said, that's a pretty important first step because you can call fuel emission standards, you can call them fuel economy standards, you can call them what you like. They all serve up the same thing. But basically, Australia doesn't have any, so we get these absolutely crap engines and crap cars coming into our country. They're about 20% less efficient than the same car sold in Europe and um, cost about $600 extra per car per year in, in out of fuel because those are so efficient, inefficient, sorry. Um, and, 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 Drew and, mentioned. and Giles, you know, I mean, we've got this ridiculous situation where we're buying oil because oil is cheap and storing it in the United States for two years because we've got nowhere to put it in Australia. $100 million <laughs> worth of oil. I mean, is that really a government policy? Is that the absolute best the government can do to buy $100 million of oil? I mean, Angus Taylor's supposed to be a really, really bright spark. He's one of a number of members of Cabinet who've got highly uh, terrific degre double degrees, you know, and they've, they've got fantastic university educations. And the best idea they can come up with is to buy $100 million worth of oil. It's pretty pathetic, really. When Australia has got, you know, and we're such a big oil importer and, and we've got no refining capacity, hardly, petrol oil refining capacity in Australia anymore, so, you know, if we did have a problem with China, I think we'd have a lot more bloody trouble than England did in World War II. Yet we could be, if we had all our own electric vehicles, it'd be pretty good from a defence perspective. And Giles, the next thing I'll start on the submarines, you know, uh, but let, let's not go there because I'll get right <laughs> off topic. But, you know, these submarines we're going to have in 2050, they're really going to stop China's aggression right now, aren't they? You are well off topic, David. But look, I thoroughly agree with you. In fact, imagine actually coming up with a policy idea and saying, look, we'll take the really bad cars, the really inefficient ones, they'll cost more in petrol, they'll actually give more pollution in the uh, in the cities, all these other noxious chemicals, not to mention the greenhouse gases. Um, we're continuing to import all our fuel. We'll spend $100 million buying fuel and put it somewhere else about sort of 15,000 kilometres away, and that's going to be our transport policy. You couldn't actually make it up, so Humphrey would be um, mighty proud and it does actually remind me of a um, – we published on the Driven website, which is actually our EV-focused website, uh, thedriven.io, for those who have not already been there. Already been there, And it was a lovely juxtaposition about, you know, people sort of talking about, oh, electric vehicles, how hard are they? And he said, well, look, turn the message around the other way and just imagine if you had an electric vehicle and someone said, no, look, I really think you should drive a petrol vehicle because, one, it's got so many moving parts, you have to repair it quite often. Um, you have to go down and deal with volatile and flammable fuels every time you fill it. Um, it's actually really quite inefficient. It's about less than 30% efficiency in the engine. Um, it's going to be highly polluting. It'll probably have climate impacts and it'll make a lot of noise and um, throw a lot of fumes up and stuff like that. And 
you think about it that way and you go, well, why would you? Anyway. Charles, the other two points I think that to make are they are about vehicle standards. Australia could have some decent vehicle standards and you know, this just like we could have some zero emissions standards like California and other states and nine other states in the United States do. And then you could let in time honoured best economic practice, let the let the market work out how best to meet those standards. And, and, and that would be a great start. And the second point I want to make, which I've made lots and lots of times, but is that a lot of the car industry or driving rules and whatever, and costs are under the control of state governments. And this is an area, state governments have been pretty good in some ways in doing something about their electricity side of things, but they have done nothing about vehicles, buses, or at least progress is painfully slow. And, and, and I think now that the technology is becoming more obviously fit for purpose, uh, now that the charging standards, somewhat controversially, but they're starting to settle down a little bit so that we know what to build to, to relieve range anxiety, whether it's that anxiety is justified or not, it is a good time for states to start to think about what they can do in this area, which typically is the second largest source of emissions for many states. Absolutely. And you did mention fuel emission standards and whether we would have one. Look, Josh Frydenberg, when he was Environment Minister a couple of years ago, did actually float the idea. He wrote an editorial and it got shot down very quickly by the New Limited Papers, who quickly branded it a carbon tax on wheels, invented some number that Angus Taylor is still repeating about the cost of such standards and, um, and what have you. And I remember actually going along to the Energy Efficiency Conference in Melbourne that year, and um, Josh Frydenberg was asked about this. Okay, you've raised this idea of fuel emission standards. When are you going to do it? And he just said, look, we can't. We can't. You saw the headlines. We can't do it. We did, you know, and it was, it was such a spineless reaction to the News Limited um headlines and the bullying but um gosh i think we've spent the last 10 years witnessing this but um anyway look david um great interview and let's do some more on electric vehicles going forward a couple of other things to talk about um firstly the five minute change rule change now this is the important one that um, was considered very important was pushed forward by sun metals a zinc producer back in 2015 um, a switch from the 30-minute settlements, which people widely accept as being rorted and not particularly efficient and not very sort of um, reflective of the market, push it to a five-minute settlement. That will encourage new technologies like battery storage and demand response. It was proposed in 2015, initially resisted by the AMC in 2017. And, sorry, initially resisted, then it's finally accepted in 2017, but with a four-year delay, um, ostensibly so people can get their IT systems in order which I guess would take some time, but now there's a push for a delay. And very interesting to see the way that some people have actually fallen on either side of this discussion. I think we expected all the big utilities to be arguing for a delay, but what was really interesting in the submissions that eventually found their way onto the um, AEM's then page was that some of the big utilities like AGL and Energy Australia, interestingly, the two big utilities who already operate big batteries, were arguing for no delay, saying it wasn't justified, it hadn't been consulted, would cost more if it was a delay, and we should get on with it. That's right. Uh, and so there is quite a bit of division. And I think it's also interesting in another way, more or less be the first big decision that, you know, where you could say that John Pearce definitely on the surface won't have much of, much of a hand in it. Uh, so, you know, it's the first opportunity, if you like, for the AEMC to start thinking about its new life. Um, and as you say, the industry is divided on it. Uh, in any, it is, 
ridiculous that four years is not long enough to do whatever software you can it's it's reasonable to have an argument about what the costs and benefits are although that that's largely been decided i'm very strongly of the view and uh, i think that when when you look forward that batteries are going to have a massive role to play in electricity in australia not necessarily, almost certainly in storage, but beyond storage, their role in frequency control and in control of the system and coupled with grid forming inverters, I think that anyone who looks at the forward view of a decarbonised electricity system would see a big role for batteries there. And so rules that essentially get batteries into the system, like the five-minute rule, I think should should be encouraged myself, but that's me what I think and what should. I'm not the AMC, uh, probably for the benefit of everyone. Mm. <laughs> well, you never know. You might be the new chairman. We haven't heard who the new chairman will be. So um, thank you for keeping that quiet, David. Um, the um, Talking about rules and regulations and delays and uh, whatnot, um, South Australia um, obviously joined New South Wales and Victoria in becoming very frustrated with the pace of change. Um, it's been pushing for the project Energy Connect, which we've talked an awful lot about um, in this program. This is the new link between South Australia and New South Wales, um, given the in principle okay, but still to go through some regulatory hurdles. And South Australia is clearly worried about any further delays in that. And it's also fast-tracked some other changes, particularly around inverter standards for rooftop PV and also in protocols and the ability for AEMO to be uh, to identify and observe and even switch off if needed. Needed um, rooftop solar PV on mass if needed. Um, essentially, this comes from a new AEMO report which identified risks in South Australia, particularly if it only has one link, becomes an island, a whole bunch of other things go wrong, and how does AEMO manage that huge amount of solar PV which can almost dominate the grid? Um, quite interesting, but. Um, all these things are things that we've expected because we've talked about these in Western Australia who are facing similar programs. I think South Australia is probably ahead of the curve there. But once again, David, um, um, a lot of frustration with the... Uh, uh, another reason to point out that the regulatory processes are not fit for purpose. Well, I, I think it's tough. You know, it, it, when an industry is transitioning very quickly, it is very hard for rule makers who inevitably have to think about broader interests. And... and you can't really argue with the AEMC's focus on the consumer. You can just argue whether they really look at the consumer today. It's the same as the AER, which nearly always emphasises the lowest possible cost. Whereas, you know, in theory, in the longer term, networks of owners and operators might like to invest lots in uh, in areas for future electricity because if they were a private company with no rules, that's what they would do. But you know, the regulator has a different view. And I can understand the regulator's point of view. Uh, you know, you made two separate uh, uh, things that are going on. One of them is that the RIT, it's like what happens. It's just not fit for purpose. And so people inevitably start bending the rules or changing them or dropping out. We've seen Victoria drop out or have a derogation, as the AEMO calls it, in regard to transmission in Victoria. And in fact, a couple of years ago in South Australia, the South Australian government said it would commit a couple of hundred million dollars to this project Interconnect, uh, but they haven't. But they've been a bit quiet about that ever since. And the fact is that the RIT test doesn't actually really measure the, all the benefits that are going to uh, uh, flow from that project. And, you know, it's, it's the criticism of it that was made by Frontier Economics 
was that uh, there was an unrealistic assumption that all the gas uh, fire generation in South Australia would close the day project interconnect open. That's that's not what's going to happen. And so it's fair enough in one sense for Frontier to, to criticise it on that basis and to pass that criticism on to the AR. But uh, that doesn't actually, it's really got nothing to do with the bigger picture that this is going to be a great project for, for South Australia. And you only have to look at South Australia and say they've got uh, two gas pipelines coming in. Uh, which they really wanted to have um, uh, because it's just energy security for that state. And the state doesn't want to get stuck with just uh, just having one transmission line. We've already seen what happens when they've only got one trans. Well, I've got two, but the other one's pretty useless from, from the Riverina. Um, so, so that's as far as that goes. And then in New South Wales, we're seeing uh, Transgrid uh, has stepping up for a new model of doing transmission investment uh, uh, for an area between um, Tamworth and Gunnedah. Uh, where they're inviting expressions of interest from uh, potential generators as to how transmission could be upgraded there and they could get guaranteed access. And then, of course, we've got the uh, actual formal renewable energy zone, which uh, has got, what, what did you say on your website today, 27 gigawatts or something of, uh, of people who put their hand up, which shows that um, uh, solar developers are pretty hard to keep down uh, for any extended period of time. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, New South Wales government was calling for proposals amounting to three gigawatts. And as you say, they've got 27 gigawatts. So, um, yes, certainly lots of opportunities out there. And um, we are actually hoping to speak to the New South Wales Energy Minister, Matt Keane, in our next podcast. So we do look forward to that. And maybe we might leave the discussion on that for that particular program. Just one thing I just want to wrap up with, David, the summer review report put out by Australian Energy Market Operator talking about last summer. Extraordinary three months when you think about it. Um, record temperatures. Um, bushfires, heat waves, um, flooding, um, landslips, um, interconnectors going out for a period of three weeks. You've got the normal fossil fuel generators melting down or being on long-term absence. Um, added to that, we've had um, solar output cut back by the haze and the smoke. We've actually had wind turbines. It's been so hot at the top of the wind turbine hubs 100 metres up in the air, more than 40 degrees that even they've packed up on certain occasions. Um, of course, you had a bit of poetic licence. You could probably write a quite a gripping novel about it, but um, they did manage to keep the lights on. I'm not sure how gripping the novel would be, to be honest, Charles. I think most readers would want to read something <laughs> a bit more interesting than being stuck up the top of a wind tower, but... Uh, I'm not sure what you'd do for chapter two, but um, uh, what you can say is that, uh, and it was pointed out by um, by Global Rome uh, quite often, and Paul McArdle, that in fact wind performs poorly as a general statement in high heat. Uh, the wind tends to drop off, never mind the actual turbines uh, not work, working. And in fact, generally speaking, generation struggles in high heat. But what I can say, if you look more broadly, despite all of those problems, despite everything, Pool prices are pretty much only like two-thirds of what they were uh, last year for the first uh, half of the year. And I think that's an outstanding uh, um, outcome for consumers. I, I personally don't necessarily think pool prices should be low. I think they should be high for energy efficiency points of view. Uh, but nevertheless, the fact is that prices have come down despite all those problems that, we occur that were incurred during that March quarter, and particularly in New South Wales. And... Uh, uh, you know, in the futures outlook, uh, the futures curve suggests that prices are continue to be low going forward. And yet, we still see companies like Amazon supporting new projects in Australia. Uh, and we still see Queens new developments in Queensland. We still see fantastic uh, appetite uh, uh, um, for the renewable energy zone. So, uh, 
you know, there's a certain amount of momentum that's been built up here. Uh, we shouldn't talk too long, but, uh, you know, there's no, we should be encouraged, I think, by how much progress has been made despite all the problems. Indeed, and that's probably a nice way to end this uh, week's podcast. I do like to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Solaray Energy. We do appreciate your ongoing support. And um, David, thank you very much for you. Look, um, well done on that interview with um, Drew Kojak from the ICCT. Great to get an electric vehicle. Well, Giles, onto the I, website. I know. And, I mean, um, you're, you're the one with the Tesla. Uh, I, I know you really wanted to be on that interview, and it was a great shame you couldn't be. But uh, it is great to have a worldwide perspective, I think. And, uh, you know, they've, they've got offices in a lot of countries, as they, as they made clear. And uh, who knows? They may even end up with one in Australia. Just imagine Australia with an electric vehicle policy. We may find out by the end of the year. But um, anyway, that's enough for now. Thank you very much for listening. Please leave a review on your favourite platform or preferably the Apple platform. There's lots of very nice comments there. Thank you very much for those who made it. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.